This is, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the severely niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast, where we amaze our legions of fans by diving into the most important, but also the most minute details in Vancouver Grizzlies history. This is the first episode of season two, and today we tackle what is broadly believed to be the greatest NBA draft of all time, that being on June 26th, 1996, in scenic East Rutherford, New Jersey, leading to one of the most famous Slam Magazine covers of all time, the 1996 entry draft. I'm here with the tracker of variants, Mr. Pitch and Putt himself, Justin McElroy. How's it going, Justin? There are dozens of our fans, Jeremy. Dozens! <laughs> Legions! <laughs> but uh, I am, you know, we had season one, we had uh, lots of losses, but we also had a team that was baked in where there was only so much that could happen. Drafts every year for the Vancouver Grizzlies were full of possibilities full of disappointments, but this one, as everyone knows, we got here the greatest player that the Vancouver Grizzlies ever had in Sharif Abdul-Rahim. But everything around the draft and what could have happened and what other teams did was fun to look back 25 years later, God ruled, but also extremely interesting just to see what could have been for this team of all the different roads that were not taken that fateful night in New Jersey. Yeah, absolutely. I was really excited to see kind of the level of talent that was there and also to go back and see how they were discussed on the broadcast. And speaking of that broadcast, we were on TNT uh, watching the American feed. We were informed again by David Sturm that it was broadcast on YTV in Canada. Unfortunately, couldn't find the YTV feed this time around. Biggest disappointment of the day. <laughs> I think so. I was texting you being like, but we're going to get the YTV feed, right? Um, and, uh, you know, much to our chagrin or delight, I guess you might say, we started out with a pretty, um, I don't know if you noticed, that creepy opening from Magic Johnson. I want my name to be called. I want to walk across the stage. I don't think there's one guy who ever had forgotten when he was drafted. You will always remember that. You always have. That eerie music kind of like talking about the intensity of being the number one pick, which I get is very cool, but also it was just, I don't know, the, the production was really creepy. And then Ernie Johnson cuts in and goes, New York City as a backdrop here in East Rutherford, New Jersey. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, it was in New York. Oh, no, it was, no. It was in East Rutherford. I mean, no, no one's ever excited to be in Jersey. The Nets were never excited to, to be in New Jersey. That's why they're in Brooklyn. But, you know, you talk about this year's broadcast. Sadly, no YTV. But this year, the production values for TNT, I think, took a step up. We had Peter Vesey as the analyst who actually had some really good scoops the entire time. The highlight packages for all the players were good. And, you know, for the 95 draft, we talked about a lot about sort of dated stereotypes, a lot of awkward racial conversations about character and hustle and smarts. There seemed to be a lot less of this this time, a lot less obsession with uh, underclassmen going into the draft. This was sort of the TNT that we sort of know now a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you a little bit there, but I think, I mean, yeah, if you directly compare 1995 and 96, definitely 96 is a big step forward as far as that kind of really retrograde language. But I got to say, man, like, and I don't know if this is just me sick of him now or then or what, but like, I'm so tired of Hubie Brown. He's 63 at the point um, of this recording or of this draft. He's 88 now uh, when we record this. And I'm just really tired of that, like old school basketball man perspective, harping on the fundamentals. You know, you said there was less of that coded language, but there was still like, he's really coachable. He It's really questionable if this player is coachable. And then, you know, we still had a bit of that character talk. We had it right off the top, actually, with Allen Iverson. And it's just a really privileged white lens used to view the game. And I know it's a bit anachronistic to look back on it and criticize it now, but it is 
I find it really galling to hear Hubie Brown kind of take that high horse. And then beside him, we've got Rick Pitino, who's kind of fine, but his entire shtick centers around just like focusing on the fact that he's the coach of the University of Kentucky and he's got all the little quips about his players. And like with Antoine Walker, it was like, I hope they trade him back to Kentucky and EJ and Hubie just like chortle heartily. And, you know, you talked about the underclassmen thing. That's still... You know, when they're talking about they got a four-year player there and like that's just automatically assumed to be good. Whereas hilariously now in the NBA, that's kind of like, oh, this guy was in college for four (laughs) years. Like he's wasted two or three good years that he could have had playing in the pros and making money. So not as much racism, but I mean, I'm sure you must have noticed the xenophobia. Um, Oh, reporters, reporter Scott Hastings, right? They go to him and the first thing he says is... um, Boston's thinking about taking someone whose name I can't even pronounce. And I'm like, okay, man, like, is that the guy's fault? Or is that your lazy ass's fault for not taking 30 seconds to figure it out? And when they didn't have any information about Martin Mercep at the 25th pick from Estonia, and they were literally like, yep, we haven't done our research, cut to a break. I mean, yeah, when you're comparing from 2020 draft coverage to 1996, it's pretty retrograde and not great. The last draft I watched was the 1995 one, so I am grading on that curve. But certainly... I missed YTV. Let's just put it that would have been fun to have that going. But let's move from that to the meat of the draft right before the first pick. David Stern shows up. He actually gets cheered. It's in New Jersey. This is a New York crowd. They have three first round picks. We'll talk about that later. They are pumped for this evening. And immediately we go into speculation of what could happen for the first pick. And even though the Grizzlies do not have that, they legally could not have the first pick because of expansion rules. There is speculation that they might somehow get that first pick. Yeah, well, I'm guessing there's a way around this to trade the rights to a player rather than to trade the pick, right? Like you'd have Philadelphia select who Vancouver wants and then do the switches from there. Um, I'm guessing that's how you get around it. But a great article that you dug up from the Knight Ritter News Service talking about the fact that the Grizzlies quite badly wanted to move up to number one. And I'm going, oh my God, we could have had the answer. We could have had Allen Iverson. But don't set yourself on a flight of fancy imagining AI in the teal and white quite so quickly because, Justin, why did Stu want to move up to number one? Why did Stu want to do anything? You know, you look, (laughs) and it wasn't just in that newspaper because on the broadcast, they said it's like there's been rumors that the 76ers were in conversation with the Grizzlies. And I suddenly had visions of Iverson and Big Country on the pick and roll. Not to be because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the Grizzlies were set on one player the entire time. And that was Sharif Abdurrahim. There were questions over who would draft, who the 76ers would draft, who the Raptors would draft. It turned out all three teams got the player they wanted the most at the end of the day. But the Grizzlies were so dead set on getting him and so worried that they wouldn't, that they might have to settle for Iverson, even though there were, you know, questions over whether he would go to Canada or not. But they were so dead set on Sharif that they were seriously talking about swapping picks with the 76ers and giving them some of their lesser picks later on in the draft to make that happen. Yeah, it seemed like um, Isaiah Thomas was actually the one throwing the wrench in the Grizzlies' plans because Jackson wanted Sharif so badly, and there were some hints that Isaiah Thomas might switch from wanting to take Marcus Camby at two. It does seem like Iverson was locked there with Philly at number one, and so Stu wasn't worried about that. He was worried about Isaiah Thomas grabbing Abdurrahim, and as we might remember too, um, I was reminded that Sharif Abdurrahim entered the draft pulled from the draft and went back in. So there was a bit of a yo-yo effect going on as to whether he would be even available to be selected. So let's move to the number one pick. With the first pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Philadelphia 76ers select Allen Iverson from Georgetown University. Congratulations. Hubie Brown says there's nobody in the league quicker than you. Is there anybody that can stop you one-on-one? I don't know. I I hope not. Um, I don't think so. You've pretty well been able to do whatever you want on the court in high school and in college. What have the Sixers told you they expect from you? Um, They just want me to come in and play my game. Um, 
you know, distribute the ball. There's great players already on the team, Stackhouse and Derek Coleman. Um, it would be crazy to think that I would come in and try to take all the shots uh, like I did at Georgetown. But um, I think I love this guy so much, so much so that I actually went to see the big three in Seattle a few years ago in the hopes of seeing a retired Allen Iverson. I love the guy. And he's just like, he's oozing swagger when he walks up there. Like he's already almost a fully formed Allen Iverson. And it just was amazing. And, you know, racist announcer alert. There's the character issues get brought up. But the part I loved was right at the end of the Iverson pack. And they go to John Thompson, the coach of Georgetown. And he said, and I think he's got a tremendous competitive heart. And I was like, that is awesome. What a great way of describing it. I, I love how they're like, well, now that Allen Iverson joins Derek Coleman and Jerry Stackhouse, maybe the 76ers. And of course, <laughs> Iverson got them to the finals without any of that. Yeah, I mean, one other thing. And the reason there were a few reasons why Iverson wasn't a consensus number one, even though it sort of seems obvious now, even with Kobe and Nash and others, is because his height as well, right? And also, it still was a big man-dominated NBA at the time. So someone that small penetrating was seen by some as a bit of a reach. But yeah, there was lots of what-ifs during this draft, and people love to recreate it because of that speculation. It's a smart choice by Philly. It worked out for them at the end of the day. The Grizzlies drafting third and getting Abdurrahim is sort of fine and defensible. If they went one and it was reach... Oh, you know, uh, some yeah, of our, yeah. we have good memories of reefs. Some of them might be a little tinged if that had happened. Yeah. And so we moved to number two and it's uh, Toronto and they take Marcus Camby from UMass university of Massachusetts, the reigning college player of the year. The one thing that I found interesting about that was the Craig Sager interview. He did. He drops a little nugget that he played Damon Stoudemire one-on-one -on -one at Rucker park in New York, which I was just like, that's amazing. First of all, a 6'11 dude playing a six foot or even smaller point guard just out on the street at Rucker in New York. That would have been fun. He said he lost 5'4, but uh, there's Camby to Toronto. And we go to the big moment the Vancouver Grizzlies on the clock, and Stu gets his man. With the third pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Vancouver Grizzlies select. Sharif Abdurrahim from the University of California. The earliest a freshman has ever gone in the NBA draft, Sharif Abdurrahim, a high schooler in Marietta, Georgia, played his freshman year, his only year of college ball at the University of California. High fives all around backstage as the Cal freshman makes his way to meet Commissioner David Stern. The Pac-10 Player of the Year is a freshman. And the first freshman since Cliff Robinson in 1978 to lead the conference in scoring. Yeah, they, they needed a power forward to play with Reeves. They have a number of players that can play small forward. Their guards are adequate. But what they need is a dominant guy who can board, block shots, get out on the break, fill the lane. He has all of those qualities, plus he's excellent off the dribble facing. And Greg Anthony at the point had a terrific year. So now you've got you've got your legitimate center, you've got your power forward, could also swing it to three. So you've got a great start for the Vancouver Grizzlies. A year ago, debating between Cal and Georgia Tech, this time college and the NBA. What influenced your decision? Well, I felt like I was in a situation where I could um, really put my family in a better situation, put myself in a better situation, you know, just fulfill a lifetime dream. And I um, just opted to go ahead and do that. A great talent. That's the comment from Hubie Brown. Rick Patino says a future all-star. Your game, you're versatile, you do everything. What position, how do you think you fit in? Well, you know, I'm just ready to go in and play whatever position um, Vancouver wants me to play. Three, four, whatever they want me to do. I just want to um, come in and contribute and win some basketball games. A lot of hugs, a lot of kisses, some tears of joy from your mama Mina back there, too. What does it mean to your family? Um, it means so much because um, I guess I look at it, if I work, they work, and they've just been with me for so long and um, trying to get to this point. So it's, it's, it's just a um, big moment for us. And, and, you know, at the time, there was not really any question about this. You look at all the articles before the draft happened, and it was clear that Sharif was the player that they wanted more than anyone else. You know, we talk about Kobe, we talk about Nash being lower on. 
there was no question or no real even speculation or debate or argument that, yeah, if they kept the third pick, maybe they should pick one of those guys. And look, Reef was highly valued around the league. He played just one season at California. He dominated by the standards of that era, of any era, for a first-year 6'10 big man. The things that you would talk about, his the flaws in his game today, that the lack of a long shot, that the lack of, you know, he was tall, he wasn't insanely athletic, were not necessarily things at the time. He was just seen as a beast of a power forward. And uh, you look... <laughs> We're used to Vancouver Grizzlies players getting drafted and looking sad because of Steve Francis. He's happy to be picked. He looks thrilled uh, to begin with. Everyone on the Grizzlies looks thrilled. And he goes on and uh, gives the Grizzlies more productive minutes and more superstar, not superstar, but star panache than any player that they ever had. You know, this is a fantastic moment for the franchise. It's what the team wanted. It's what Sharif seemed to legitimately enjoy. There's lots of times you can look at Grizzly stuff now and go, oh, what if this happened? What if that happened? You know, this was a nice moment. Yeah, and just a quick reminder of that whole, like, the NBA draft paradigm is that the collective hive mind forms over, like, a number of months, and the consensus is there, and you're not really going to stray from it that much. That's just kind of how it works. And Abdurrahim was, there was no questions when they picked him from the panel, from anyone. It was like, oh, yeah, like... This is the, you know, first ever freshman to be the player of the year in the Pac-10, right? You know, you can't, you absolutely cannot call this a bust pick. It's not a bust pick. Yes, there were better picks available, but this is a guy who is, he ends up being eighth in his draft class in win shares and value over replacement, ninth in uh, box score plus minus. He goes 18 points, eight rebounds, three assists for his career, 47% shooting uh, from the field, 81 from the line. And, uh... He was the best player on the squad for the the whole time that uh, he was on the Vancouver Grizzlies. So we can kind of wonder what could have been, but this is not something where you can look back and go, this is a brutal pick. Uh, speculate on a podcast? Who would ever do that? I mean, <laughs> I think one thing, you, you could make the argument that maybe Ray Allen, right? Because when they talked about this consensus forming, that there was sort of... It, it, a top five, and it was Iverson, Camby, Abdurrahim, Marbury, and Allen. And they were sort of talked, and Sharif was a level, level up, but those two were there. Marbury, you know, flamed out uh, after his first eight or nine solid seasons, and it's hard to imagine that he would have stayed in Vancouver for more than three years. You could make a case that drafting Ray Allen would have uh, had a better impact on the team over the long run. But you have to stretch a little bit uh, to imagine both the Grizzlies, A, making that leap, and in 1996, picking a pure shooter over a big man as well. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately, was Allen going to change the trajectory of the team in a way that maybe Kobe or Nash would have? It's hard to make that argument. Yeah, and I mean, they do say Greg Anthony can breathe easy because the Grizz didn't <laughs> draft Marbury, which I thought was interesting because it didn't seem like I mean, of course, he was kind of next on the big board, but it didn't seem like there was any suggestion that the Grizzlies were leaning anywhere but to Sharif Abdurrahim. So let's keep it going here, McElroy. And um, just briefly, we do go to the Milwaukee Bucks at number four, and they pick Starbury, Stefan Marbury. And there's like a really nice emotional moment where they cut to the interview with Sager, and Marbury's just, he's crying, man. He's hes giving her and, and kind of letting it all on the line, which I know back in the day was a bit more odd than it is today. Like now it's a bit more understood that, you know, that's showing that emotion is the biggest moment of your life. <laughs> yeah. It's a, okay. It's good. You've worked your whole life for this. Right. Um, and we don't learn for a bit later, but we can talk about it now. Number five, Minnesota takes Ray Allen. And there had been a lot of talk. Actually, uh, Peter Vesey gets it wrong. And he thinks that Allen's going to be traded for Portland point guard, Rod Strickland. But instead we get that four or five trade, where Marbury goes to Minnesota to play with KG and uh, Ray Allen ends up in Milwaukee. And then that interview on the TNT set just an hour after the trade as well, which is just such a mind-blowing, you know, what could have been there. Even though at the end of the day, both players made their biggest uh, impact and legacy on a different team. You, you know, for Marbury, it's arguably the Nets. For Allen, you know, I guess you, you know, he won his championships with both the Celtics and the Heat. But it's one of those little nuggets within the draft at the end of the day, which is just so fun to see 
and uh, ultimately, yeah, both of those players had a higher cachet and impact than Reef, but still three productive careers there. It's just amazing how loaded at the top of this draft is. Totally. And the funny thing was, they don't do this anymore. I don't even know if they ever did this after this year, but they actually got Marbury and Allen to come up on the stage and get their new jerseys. It was yes. like, hey, y'all been traded. Get back up here. Which is now like they don't even really, they don't, it's funny. They kind of like stick you. You're still on your team. This was funny. It's like, yep, it's through. Come on up. Um, after Ray Allen, we get, you know, a bit of a, a dip in this draft. It goes Antoine Walker to Boston, Lorenzen Wright to the Clippers, Kerry Kittles to the Nets, Samaki Walker and his all white suit and white <laughs> bowler hat to the Dallas Mavericks. Tremendous. Kind of the, yeah, tremendous. The, kind of the only kind of bold aesthetic, the old style pick, because like the suits were actually way less baggy this year, and actually a lot of them just looked kind of good. It was it was yeah. interesting to see that twenty five years on. Eric Dampier goes to Indiana. Then we get Todd Fuller, the biggest bust of the lottery, bringing in with a minus two point three value over replacement player to the Golden State Warriors. Vitali Potapenko or Potapenko, depending <laughs> on um, who you go with. And then we kind of come to that legendary part of this draft and pretty much the most important moment of this draft, though, of course, they didn't know it at the time. And that being Kobe Bryant going to the Charlotte Hornets at number 13. And of course, we all know the epic era of the Charlotte Hornets and Kobe. It's funny. <laughs> it's just sort of set as an aside at the very end of the first round. Oh, well, he's going to the Lakers, I guess. And... Uh, <clears throat> Obviously, Kobe is the most impactful player in this draft, one of the most impactful players in NBA history. But in the actual broadcast of this, not so much. He's seen as a high schooler that is intriguing, though not necessarily talked about at the same level as KG the year before. There's a little bit of uh, a package on him later on as well. Uh, but it's not like the broadcasters are talking about him or hyping him up for picks and picks of, is this team going to pick him? Do you know, are the Nets going to pick him? Are the Dallas Stars going to pick him? Are the Pacers going to pick him? Uh, and yeah, but, then and I found that really weird, man. Like, cause the interesting thing is he wasn't mentioned until 45 minutes into this draft, but then whenever they mentioned him, it was only in glowing terms. So I find that a bit odd that they had this like separation between the, the glowing reviews and the, like they, they quoted Jerry West as saying, greatness lies ahead for Kobe Bryant, but yet you're right. There was no narrative built. Not that these guys are great at, at building narratives into this event, but you think if that's what they're going to say, this amazing high schooler from high schooler from Pennsylvania, his dad played in the NBA, like all these stories about him, you'd think that would be figured into it. But as you also said earlier, you know, a consensus forms around the top picks and yeah. who is at the top. And in 1995, KG was talked about in that top tier. In this draft, Kobe, for whatever reason, wasn't. And maybe it was scouting. You know, frankly, I think, again, we go back to how much big men used to dominate in the NBA. The fact that KG was, you know, close to seven feet, just full of athleticism. And Kobe was just another shooting guard, in a sense, for some of these scouts. And only 18 when at the time that was still fairly taboo. But it was interesting to see just, you know, if you had watched this draft, you would not have picked up in any real way. This is the guy that's going to make the biggest mark on the NBA of all these players. Yeah. And I mean, it's so I mean, speaking of the trade, like they had assumed it had been ha it had happened, but the trade actually didn't go through until 13 days after the draft because Vladdy who um, the Lakers were trading because they wanted to free up cap space to try and sign Shaq was like, I'll retire if you trade me to Charlotte. <laughs> and so this whole thing got like thrown into the blender. And then of course, two weeks later, it does go through, but it's interesting because you look at those highlights of Kobe and the modern version of watching those highlights is going back to watch LeBron in high school. And I get like, I wonder like if there's something that makes the scouting more difficult when Kobe Bryant is dunking on a guy that looked like me in like grade 12, <laughs> like, yep. you know, five foot 11 and 145 pounds. 
it's like, yeah, that's impressive, but look at who he's playing against. Like, it seems like there's an element of that, but man. I think he... it's the physicality, right? And you think about, like, what Kobe is known for, and it, a big part of it is just that hyper-competitiveness and intensity that was just at this extreme level past everyone else. Yeah, he can hit an 18-foot shot, and yeah, he can penetrate. Lots of players could, and maybe you can't necessarily see that he's that much higher than everyone else at 18 years old compared to some of these 20-year-olds. Of course, it was the wrong to, you know, for 13, what was it, 12 teams to overlook him was a mistake. I'm just saying I can understand it a little bit. A yeah, little no, bit. I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not necessarily raking those 12 teams over the coals, but another point is when he takes the stage. I don't know if it's just me being impacted by what I know now. It's it's very possible. But I felt he did have a commanding presence. Well, Kobe, your dad can tell you about the NBA. You can watch every playoff game on TV. But until you go through the workouts, experience yourself, you don't get that firsthand. What was it like, the tryouts? What did you learn? Well, I learned that you have to work hard and you have to approach the game with a serious mindset. Uh, there's a step up from high school, and I understand that. So, therefore, every time I step on a basketball court, I'm going to put a strong effort out there on the floor. I'm, I'm not going to leave anything on the floor. You had the grades, you had the scores to go to college. Why the NBA? It's the ultimate challenge. You know, if I was 40 years old and I'm sitting back and I'm looking back at my career, if I went to college and played on the NBA, maybe I had a great career, maybe not. And I'm still having that down my mind. Could I have answered that challenge? Could I have responded to the challenge of the NBA? And that's something that I didn't want to have on my, on my shoulders, so I just really accepted it. A year ago is Kevin Garnett sitting where you are. Have you talked to him? What advice has he given you? He's talked to me. He's told me a lot of stories and a lot of experiences that he was going through. But all in all, he said it has to be your own decision. You know, he said that I, he can give me a lot of pros and cons, but ultimately has to be my decision. Like, there was an intensity. There was this, like, deep confidence. And it's like he's done this before, even though he had it. That was... um. Yeah, that was something else to see him in that interview, really like just kind of owning the moment. And, you know, we don't need to go too far into it, but this is a guy, 173 win shares, 20 years, fourth all-time points, eighth in minutes, five titles. You go on and on. One thing that I didn't realize, 12-time defensive first or second team, which is, you know, super impressive for a superstar as well. But, uh, yeah, very, very important moment of this draft. Yeah, he's like one of 10 players in NBA history where you can say his first name and you know who you're talking about immediately. But a bigger moment in this draft comes two picks later, at least a bigger moment for the history of the Vancouver Grizzlies, for the history of basketball in Vancouver and in Canada. Because, of course, we are talking about the one, the only, Victoria's Finest, Steve Nash. With the 15th pick in the 1996 NBA draft, the Phoenix Suns select Steve Nash from the University of Santa Clara. Being picked about where people thought that he would be picked at the end of the day, 15th overall by Phoenix. And it's a moment still when you look at it all set up and they talk about it. They talk about Victoria. They talk about my high school that I went to, St. Michael's, where he went to. It's still a moment that is lovely, even if you're going, how the heck did the Grizzlies mess up missing this guy? Yeah, and they, it was pretty cool to see. I mean, they they call him immediately a poor man's John Stockton. Um, I guess EJ at one point calls him Victoria's Secret, which I thought was um, a, a <laughs> big-time eye-roller. But he comes up on the stage, and he's like a valedictorian wrapped in a communications professional. Like, he's so polished, it's almost alarming. Uh, you know, Steve, normally... I know you're happy. Normally, we don't like to compare players to those currently in the NBA, but with you, the comparisons don't stop. I must ask for the comparison between you and Kurt Rambis, the other Santa Clara pro. <laughs> well, uh, we're similar in size, I think. Uh, no. uh, you know, honest, honestly, it's just exciting for me to, to be here. I think that uh, Santa Clara hasn't had a pro since Rambis, and it's exciting for the school. And I want to thank Santa Clara, St. Michael's High School, Arbutus Junior High, all my coaches, my family, and my friends. They've done a lot for me along the way, and I couldn't have done it without any of them. Buddy Blake, the NBA's director of scouting, always talks about the importance of playing in these postseason camps. What was your mentality? What were your thoughts going into Phoenix and the Desert Classic when you performed so well? Uh, well, there's a lot of pressure there because you never know where you're going to go. And I think people are always speculating and this and that. And, uh, you know, I just went out there with a positive attitude and tried to control things that I could control and not worry about the extracurricular stuff. So I was really uh, pleased with my performance in Phoenix and it definitely helped me. He's so charming. 
super comfortable in the spotlight, like similar to Kobe in the comfort, but not with that same like deep burning intensity, more just like, I am going to just like take over this interview basically. Like, thanks everyone. It's like he won the Oscars. Yeah, he's just, it was a delight to see. Um, I should point out that, you know, whereas the announcers pointed out that Allen Iverson has character issues, Steve Nash is an quote, outstanding young man, which I, I really, you know, that, uh, that juxtaposition did jump out at me, even though there was 14 or 13 picks between them. But yeah, no, a great, a really nice moment to see Steve Nash kind of, set out on what ended up being a Hall of Fame career. And what was interesting in how they described him, right? Because sometimes they miss the mark on these players. And obviously, they didn't describe him like he was going to become a two-time All-Star. They didn't describe him like he was going to become an NBA Hall of Famer. But the way they did describe him, you, you know, they said it's like, He's a great shooter, but his weakness is that he needs to shoot more. They talked about his vision on the court. They talked about his smarts. Like, all of the things that became, we completely identify with the Steve Nash way of playing point guard were hyped up and previewed in those three or four minutes when they were talking about him, which was interesting to see. We have to discuss, though, and we have to rant, or at least I'm going to rant. You can if you want to as well. Why didn't the Grizzlies pick up? I mean, why didn't they do anything to try and get up to that point right, where right. they could get him? Yeah, like somehow package the 22 and something to get up there. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the conversation was, but you'd think from a marketing standpoint to have a legit NBA player from this part of the world would have obviously had with the level of play that he brought to the floor as well, but just having that guy you can point to and say, Hey, he's from here. He's from just across the street. This is our guy. We're going to war with them. Come see Steve Nash. They should have been bending over backwards. They should have been trading whatever they could to get him. I don't know the paradigm or what was going on, or if there was any conversation about that at the time. Um, but yeah, to move up those seven spots, you'd think could have been doable. I asked Stu Jackson about this a few years back when I did an oral history of the team. And he basically said, look, it didn't make sense where, where he was scouted, which in a sense was fair. No one was scouting him as a top five pick or someone that would be there at number three or would be there later on at number 22 when they had. That yeah, pick. I don't think you can argue at all that he should have been picked third. Like I just. The thing was essentially he just did not see a merit beyond an emotional attachment to trying to mm. get him to the team. And he th thought that it basically to do that would be to buy into sort of hometown pride over objective evaluations. But you have to bring some sizzle to a team to make fans care. And at the end of the day, they could have done just a little bit to get him in there as a backup point guard, and it would not have cost them too many assets. It continues to be mind-boggling. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that he kind of like rejects that sentimentalism outright because, like you said, the worst thing you're getting is a backup or a fourth or fifth guard who's the voice and face of the team from the hometown. I mean, there's so much value in that marketability. Maybe you're moving more tickets through Shoppers Drug Mart. Maybe you're filling the stadium a little bit more because you people are interested to see the guy who played in the BC Championships at the Agrodome playing across town at GM Place. Like, Just that's, four years this... earlier. Like, this was, like, when... You know, when I was a kid and he's at Santa Clara, people are still bringing him up like he's a legend. Like he was, his journey was so ingrained into kids uh, of what could happen to them if they played basketball. And I can just imagine the hundreds of people from Victoria that would have been on the spirit of Vancouver Island every yeah. Saturday and Sunday going to games to see this kid that they grew up playing against or idolized. Oh, and yeah. now they can go, go see. I'm not saying it changes the trajectory of the team per se, because it did take Nash a few years to get to that point that he was a really impactful player. And you can say, well, maybe if you had starting minutes with the Suns earlier on, that happens. But again, the fact that the Grizzlies never really tried to make this happen, aside from a couple, you know, they were offered from the Suns uh, the number four pick, which they picked Antonio Daniels the next year. But there was never really the sense that a key to making the Grizzlies good was having the star player from Victoria that was slowly advancing. And I'll just never get that. I'll never get that. 
So what, I mean, that's, I, I totally hear where you're coming from. So what do you offer that is interesting to Phoenix? Because, okay, first of all, of course, no brainer, you offer the 22. So you offer them to drop down seven picks, but then what, okay. So what are you throwing in? Because I don't think you're going to offer next year's first because now you're offering a top, you're basically offering a, a guaranteed lottery pick and a 22 to move up seven spots. Like that doesn't make a lot of sense to me either. And then I'm looking at like, okay, let's look at the 96, 97 roster for the Grizzlies. Like, who are you flipping? Are you offering them Greg Anthony? Cause I guess they need a point guard. Maybe you offer Greg Anthony, maybe you offer blue Edwards, but like, we're not a team that's really steeped in a lot of assets here. Yeah. You know but there's second round picks. You can pick for future years. Keep in mind, at this time, the Grizzlies moved a bunch of draft picks around to get Pete Chilcutt. Pete Chilcutt from the Houston Rockets because they thought he was an important part of the team. And so it was, you know, they traded a couple second round picks in the future and there was a first and second uh, this year. So if it mattered enough to the team, they could have made it happen. It didn't. He didn't come. And we don't have a team in Vancouver. And I know we can't point X, Y, Z, but to me, it's one of the biggest what did Stu do and what ifs for this team. Oh, I didn't know we were going to do what did Stu do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you're landing on 22 and like two future seconds two future, or something like yeah, that? Yeah, you know, you can do two future. Or, or, or 51 this year. Yeah, or 51 this year. Or, you know, maybe maybe they're interested in Blue Edwards. We don't know that. Probably not. But I find it hard to imagine there was not a way to reconcile that seven picks somehow in there if it mattered. And you know what? Like, as much as we like to, to really rake Stu and drag Stu, I mean, you would think this is where the local knowledge becomes crucial, right? Because to Stu, he doesn't get it. He's not from here. He doesn't know. I'm guessing he doesn't know how big of a deal it is for us to have any Canadians in the NBA at all, let alone a local British Columbian playing for the British Columbian team. So where is Arthur Griffiths? Where are the people in the front office who are like, no, seriously, like, let's really think this through. I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's, it comes down to organizational hubris, right? Uh, again, part of the reason this is infuriating as well is that the Grizzlies go, no, we don't need to move heaven and earth to get a local point guard this year. And then they draft a point guard the next draft, the draft after that, and the draft after that as well. <sighs> We've been ranting about this for 10 minutes and I'm still angry. And <clears throat> we're going to watch some Steve Nash games, hopefully in the future against the Grizzlies. But boy, it's it still stinks. McElroy needs a beer. Uh, okay, we move on from uh, number 15 there. Steve Nash to let's just, well, let's roast through it. One small point we should talk about. So we go Tony Delk to Charlotte, Jermaine O'Neal to Portland. And the foreshadowing here is that the crowd roars when Jermaine O'Neal is picked. And interestingly, the TNT team doesn't pick up on it. They're like, that's the biggest roar of the day. And it's because John Wallace has fallen to the New York Knicks and John Wallace had been after taking Syracuse to the final four or actually to the finals, um, the final two in the NCAA tournament had fallen. He played for Syracuse. He was a big name nationally. And so they end up with John Wallace. Then they get Walter McCarty next. Then Algauskas goes to Cleveland and then they get somebody called Dante Jones. So the Knicks had 18, 19 and 21. Their fans were very excited um, the TNT announcers were selling it. And let me just be the first to tell you, and we don't need to spend much time on this. Those three players combined have negative box plus minus and VORP for their careers. Those three combined. You know how hard that is? Oh, it's very hard. I mean, like it is. They talked more about John Wallace in this draft than Kobe, right? I mean, but this, oh, is, yeah. a, way, this way. is a guy who played four seasons played in Syracuse, the same state as the Knicks. I mean, this seemed like a big moment, but then again, you don't know how these guys are going to turn out. Jones had huge injury issues. Wallace had huge injury issues. McCarty, at the end of the day, was overrated. But it was so funny to see the Knicks fans so happy. And when you think about it, the Knicks were, <laughs> they were a good, they, you know, this was the, this was the Ewing, Houston, then Sprewell, Johnson era 
got to the finals one year, really good team. Imagine if any of those picks pan out and what could happen there. It's funny just to see this as this nice little B-plot near the end of the first round that just ends up meaning nothing. I was going to say, it was a bit cathartic as someone who, you know, just can't stand the Knicks and the fact that if they do anything, everyone talks about it for two weeks. And knowing that all this excitement amounted to nothing and knowing, yeah, they had a good squad, that grindy, grindy, grimy 90s Nick team. We don't need to talk about it anymore, but yeah, it amounted to no- it amounted to negative box plus minus <laughs> for those three picks. Uh, so on to 22, the Grizzlies are on the clock again before they go to Stern at the podium they have a graphic that comes up <laughs> and you, this is on our Twitter uh, account um, with the second pick weakness, no scorers rebounding, Just no <laughs> scorers, <laughs> nothing at all. I mean, we oh, haven't like they, they were not, not a good team. And uh, you know, let's not go into the expansion rules about not being able to pick first and everything else, but they were handicapped. You would think that maybe a pick at 22 would help them at the end of the day. It did not really Roy Rogers did not turn out as a huge star in any sense of the word, but it's hard to roast this pick over the coals with the 22nd pick in the 1996 NBA draft. The Vancouver Grizzlies select Roy Rogers from the University of Alabama. I'm like you, Rick. I I like this pick because they needed help at small forward and big forward. They needed guys who could rebound and shot block. They just got two of them in Raheem and now in Rogers. And when you think that this guy in one game blocked 14 shots, I don't care who he's playing against, he got 14 blocks. You, be, you, you turn around and you teach every good offensive low post player before he makes a move, locate the defense. When you play against this guy, you locate Roy Rogers. All you try to do is get him away. And also who they were talking about as who they also might look at was Brian Evans from Indiana, who went five picks later. Ephthemios Rentius, a Greek player, I believe. Priest Lauderdale, Othella Harrington, who we ended up with anyway. And uh, Junkyard Dog, Jerome Williams. Um, interestingly, like personally, Roy Rogers was one of my absolute favorite players on the Grizzlies for that one year. Uh, just because he just was on a pogo stick blocking people out of bounds for like 17 minutes a game. And you know what? What a great interview he gave too. Well, as they mentioned on the set, it's Roll Tide once again. You sat there watching TV last year. Antonio McDice, Jason Caffey going to the first round. Now it's your turn. When did you think you'd be sitting here? Well, to be honest, Greg, I never thought I'd have this opportunity. You know, my dream was to go to college and just get my degree. I fulfilled that dream last year by graduating with a degree in marketing. So I uh, I worked hard, ex- extremely hard in the weight room, Coach Terry Jones. I carried it over onto the court. You know, David Hobbs has done a great job with me this season. You know, I just have to say congrats. Just, just thank you to all my people back at the University of Alabama for working so hard with me, all the fans for their support. You know, it, it, was, it was tremendously hard on me waiting back in the green room, but I'm just glad to be selected here in the draft. Rick Pitino said he hasn't seen a player grow as much in one year as you have probably in the last decade. I know Roy Sr., Nadine are very proud parents. You're an NBA draft pick. You have two degrees. The question they always ask at graduation, where do you hope to be five to ten years from now? Five to ten years from now, Craig, I hopefully I will be in the front office of an NBA team. <laughs> I hope, you know, if my career is over in 12 years, I want to be around the game. I don't want to coach because coaching has too short of a lifespan, so hopefully I can be in the front <laughs> office making the decisions about who I'm going to hire and fire. He was just so charming, so charming, talking about how his education was so important and how, uh, like, he just seemed like such a great guy. And self-effacing and just, like, level of awareness around him that just don't see for any players in the draft. Though almost to, like, an extent that I thought was too much, because Sager asks him, where do you see yourself in five to ten years? And he says in the front office, which is kind of a baller answer, except it was in the next five to 10 years, Roy, like you're supposed to be playing in the playoffs for the Vancouver Grizzlies and winning us Larry O'Brien trophies, not 
pursuing your career in the front office, man. Like we picked you to play a long time. And of course now he's the, uh, one of the current assistant coaches with the uh, LA Clippers with Chauncey Billups and Kenny Atkinson. So, I mean, yeah, I loved him and that was a funny moment, but, uh, he ends up 33rd in his draft class and win shares 41st in value over replacement. Um, five points, four rebounds, 0.4 assists per game <laughs> for his career, 0.2 steals and a block and a half. So, I mean, not really that much to speak of, but uh, one super fun year. But I do, I do want to, you know, I know last time you were like kind of in denial and talking about like, oh, well, you know, those are all the what ifs, but I love to play the what if game, <laughs> yeah. McElroy. So I do want to quickly build out on this what if game a little bit with the Grizzlies. And so let's talk about Sharif a little bit. And we, of course, talked, no question, should have taken Kobe, Ray Allen, Steve yep. Nash. The paradigm wouldn't have allowed for Nash probably at the time. Kobe probably either. But of course, you know, history changes everything. And we should yep. have had those three guys. <laughs> Arguably, they should have taken Peja, was, had for sure a better career yep. than Sharif, but you couldn't have taken him at the time. And then Stefan Marbury. But what I did do was run numbers, and this actually tells the tale of the pick a lot better than I think looking at the entire careers. And I ran first five years of the careers, uh, Reef versus Kobe, Nash, Allen, and Marbury. Yeah. So amazingly, his numbers are really in line with Kobe. Like he outscores him over those five years. He out-rebounds him, ties him in assists, Pretty much ties him and steals and blocks. The shooting percentages are almost the same. Kobe ends up with um, three and a half more win shares and a bit more value over replacement. Uh, Kobe's offensive rating is a, a bit higher and his defensive rating is way better. Reef's defensive rating is not very good. And then if you look at Nash, man, like he had a way better first five years oh, yeah. than Steve Nash. Like way, like not even really that close um, as far as production. Ray Allen, it's really close. Again, the uh, Ray Allen's offensive rating quite a bit better. He did have uh, nine more win shares than Sharif, but part of me thinks like Ray Allen was on a pretty strong Milwaukee Bucks team, whereas Sharif, you know, uh, was not. And then uh, Marbury, same thing. I mean, Sharif outperforms him. He he contributes more wins. So, of course, when you look at the whole picture, Sharif is outperformed by all these guys. Marbury, it's close, um, but the other three not. But first five years, you wouldn't be crowing about, oh, we should have definitely had, you know, Steve Nash. You wouldn't even have mentioned Steve Nash, really. No. The, the, so the one thing I would say for the what if, if what changes, is not necessarily the record. It could be a little bit. The one thing that might have changed a little bit was sort of star power and panache. And, you know, we talk yeah. about Vince Carter in Toronto and how much he made the city care and made it where it's like, you need it to buy a ticket to watch him play. Sharif was a good productive player, especially. And when you compare those first five seasons, yeah, he right out of the box, he was good to go. He never really brought that. Marbury brought that. Iverson brought that. Nash would have brought that. Kobe obviously would have brought that. You wonder if there was someone with that who could light up the court in that way, what maybe that does for the conversation around the team that maybe gets enough sort of corporate investment involved in the team. It's a big what if there. But in terms of the record, you know, you're right. The problem for Sharif at the end of the day wasn't how he started off his career, but just he never had the opportunity to prove what he could do with a lot of talent around him where he wasn't being called on to shoot 20 shots a game. And we'll never know that. And it's interesting too, that like, as I hear you talk and I hear myself, we're actually dunking on Stu for being too analytical. <laughs> like he decided yes. Sharif Abdurrahim is 6'10". He's got all these attributes. He will contribute to this team. And we're like, didn't you see Kobe give that intense interview? Like <laughs> you should, you should draft for, for like character and personality anyway. But uh, what I want to do here quickly before we go is let's continue to build the Grizzlies fantasy team that we did from the 1995 draft. And so a quick reminder of what we did in that draft is we, and you know, you might have to go back and listen to it for the details a little bit, but we did the Dallas trade and the Dallas trade was, the 12th and 24 picks for big country. We picked Corliss Williamson at 12, Ostertag at 24. 
And with that trade, we got Dallas's first round pick the next year. So we're sticking with Reef at number three, because why the hell not? And then we get the number six. Uh, and you know what? I'm just saying it. We're taking Kobe with number six. Sure. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, we got it's, it's we... depressing to imagine Antoine Walker hucking threes for the Grizzlies. So I'm good with this. Yeah. No, let's let's go with Kobe. Let's let's go the, big. Let's live the high life here. Let's let's not take second rate. Oh. Okay, and then we didn't do this, but with the number twenty-two, some interesting players on the board. Uh, Derek Fisher goes twenty-fourth. The junkyard dog Jerome Williams goes twenty-sixth, and then you know Malik Rose goes forty-fourth. Shandon Anderson fifty-fourth. I'm gonna go with, and I hope you agree with this, the junkyard dog. He was yeah. so fun. You know, he was a crazy player, super hustle, hitting the boards, playing defense, doing the barks and all that. I mean, I used to like watching him for the Raptors. Just a great um, energy sixth man, basically. Yeah, what a like total fan favorite, right? So let's just take stock of what that roster would be, the fantasy roster, the with the second pick, Steve Francis fantasy roster, heading into the 96-97 season. We've got Greg Ostertag starting at five. Sharif starting at the four, Corliss Williamson starting at the three, Kobe, oh man, Kobe <laughs> starting at the two, Greg Anthony at point, and then the benches, Blue Edwards, Junkyard Dog, George Lynch, Anthony Peeler, Lawrence Moten, and I guess maybe like Eric Mobley backing yep. up at center. You can play with that. That's a, a physical team. That's a big team. Kobe has to develop much quicker under that, although I think that ends up happening regardless when you have that once-in-a-generation type talent. You know, that still team that's it's not going to make the playoffs. It's probably going to win 35. I think 35 wins is fair, but there's the foundation there, obviously. And it's a heck of a lot more exciting than seeing Blue Edwards chuck up another 15 misses a game and just Workman-like <laughs> post stuff from big country all the time. And then the one thing also that entered my head when I gazed at this roster longingly and lovingly was I wonder what the Kobe intensity does for a guy like Sharif. Because it's not, you know, it's not like he lacked intensity per se, but Sharif kind of played the same in the fourth as he did in the first. You know, he's one of those guys who's just good, just solid, but there was no elevation in those pressure moments. There was no rising to the occasion. And you wonder if Kobe helps him elevate that, or maybe they're like, you know, oil and water. Like maybe they just don't mix. I don't know, but that's another interesting thing. And, to, and there uh, was no one ever pushing about. reef. Like we've talked about uh, before that at the end of the day, he was, he could, I'm not going to say he could coast, but uh, there was not that secondary player to really see if there was that higher level for him to go. It's another, what if there, but I mean, you know, we're doing this expansive. What ifness? it's a pretty easy one just to do Sharif and Steve Nash and wonder whether that would have been more dynamic. Instead, we enter season two with Reef, Big Country, Greg Anthony. We trade Anthony Peeler in the offseason. Can they win more games than season one? <laughs> Jeremy, this is the Vancouver Grizzlies we're talking about. And with that... This has been, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast. For Justin McElroy, I'm Jeremy Allingham. Check in with us for the first game of Season 2 coming soon. You say it